Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Thought you'd like that. Oh, wait, your dad said I was funny? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for Cal Matters. And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And today, Monday, February 28th, 2022, we're talking about the latest California housing drama to make international news. This time, it's the potential that UC Berkeley, California's flagship public university and one of the finest public universities in the world, might have to cut its undergraduate enrollment by 3,000 students for next year because it's been found to have violated the state's premier environmental law governing development. We're going to break down what's going on here, what's at stake, some history of the California Environmental Quality Act, a.k.a. CEQA, which is a law that's at issue, and perhaps ultimately come to a conclusion on one of the greatest questions of our times. And what's that? Whether the existence of people, or I guess in this case students, are bad for the environment. A conversation that would make the great philosopher after which Berkeley is named, curiously actually pronounced George Berkeley, very proud. So for this episode, we have, as always, the perfect guests. Who are they, Liam? So as befitting an issue with as much drama as this case, we are interviewing two people this fortnight. First, we'll be talking with Berkeley Mayor Jesse Aragin, who has spoken forcefully for allowing the university to take on more students and against a lawsuit. And our second guest is Phil Bakavoy, the president of Save Berkeley's Neighborhoods, the group which filed this lawsuit. And here again, we would normally break for the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery, the avocado of the fortnight. But like last fortnight, when we discussed how a wealthy Silicon Valley town tried to avoid allowing fourplexes in their community by declaring itself a mountain lion habitat, this entire episode is about the most zany and wacky story in California housing over the past two weeks. So... We're going to just skip it again because our whole episode is doing it. Yeah. So with the avocado <laughs> dispensed with, we'll get right into the meat of this episode. And I think here it makes sense to start at the beginning. In this case, 1970. Oh, no. That's such a long time ago. That's the year that Governor Ronald Reagan signed the California Environmental Quality Act into law, or CEQA. The idea at the time amid a national reckoning on environmental issues. Remember, this was back when that river in Cleveland infamously and repeatedly caught fire and the Federal Environmental Protection Agency was created. And so California needed a law to protect its vistas and landscapes from overdevelopment of all sorts. And over time, with the help of some famous court decisions, the law has become what it is today, namely that all major development projects from housing to roads to power plants and the like, at some point have to reckon with the requirements of the California Environmental Quality Act. So to sum things up, the law requires developers to disclose a project's potential environmental effects on the surrounding community and take steps to reduce or eliminate those harms. This sounds simple enough. Oh, but it is not. <laughs> but alas, it can often turn into these thousand page blobs of environmental documents that chart everything from soil samples to traffic to supposed shadows that a project may cast. And successful court challenges from anyone at all could send a project back to square one. So it can be a dicey proposition for those who want to push a project forward. The whole process, lawsuit or not, can take years. Yeah, and you're often subjected to these sort of on the one hand and on the other hand takes about CEQA, namely on the one hand that it's credited for preserving the state's natural beauty, but on the other, it's also become an octopus of a law that inhibits the kind of projects the state may need. In fact, a few years ago, I wrote a piece about how CEQA was blocking the installation of bike lanes in the very city of Berkeley. Our stomping grounds for today. I think that's plenty of CEQA background, but if you do want more, we dedicated a whole episode to CEQA last fall, and we spoke with a UC Berkeley law professor who had studied it, and she had pretty general, generally positive views about CEQA and its effects. So check that out. 
Now to what's happening with the university and a lot of what we're about to say relies on the great reporting of my colleagues, Teresa Watanabe and Colleen Shalby, who have covered this issue for the LA Times. So a few weeks ago, UC Berkeley officials sent out a panic statement followed up by an email to university applicants that said the school may have to slash its incoming fall 2022 class by one third or over 3000 seats and forego $57 million in lost tuition. That's because back in August, an Alameda County Superior Court judge ordered an enrollment freeze and upheld the lawsuit from Save Berkeley's neighborhoods that challenged the environmental impact of the university's expansion plan under CEQA. Many neighbors are upset by the impact of enrollment growth on traffic, noise, housing prices, and the natural environment. The university had just found out that an appeals court declined to issue a stay against the lower court ruling. That decision has been appealed to the state Supreme Court. By the time you listen to this episode, the Supreme Court may have already weighed in. Yeah, so hopefully this episode doesn't have a super short shelf life, but I think what we're talking about is going to withstand the test of time, even if once the court rules in, which is expected to be relatively soon or perhaps already. So why don't we get in a little bit about the effects of this decision? UC Berkeley received some 128,000 applications this year. Nearly 60% of them were from Californians. About four in 10 would be students from low-income households, the first in their families to attend college, or members of underrepresented minority groups. And we don't need to get into all the research that shows the tremendous benefits that come along with education, particularly a degree from the best public university in the state, both to the people who get the education and the overall state economy. If you reduce Berkeley's planned freshman enrollment by a third, which is what's being required under the court order, it would certainly cause a whole lot of young people to lose out. These legal fights began four years ago when Save Berkeley's neighborhoods began filing lawsuits against campus growth plans in 2018. One of the principal claims is that the school failed to consider the environmental impact of adding students on the city's resources and surrounding community in terms of housing, police, fire services, water, park space, and their contribution to noise and trash. So all the things, sounds like. Pretty much everything. And indeed, the school since 2005 has added 11,000 students beyond a 2020 target laid out in its long-range development plan. It's kind of similar to how the tech industry has added so many jobs without places for those people to live in. So the school's argument here, though, is essentially that population growth is not an environmental impact, and they didn't need to analyze what would happen if they reduced student population or, or the student population was affected in this way. But a judge disagreed and the August order called for a cap on enrollment as a way to address the issue. So here we are. So let's talk about some of the broader implications here beyond just on the potential for Berkeley students and the community. If the ruling is upheld, I mean, it might not just be Berkeley that's affected. Surely residents surrounding other UC campuses, and I'm thinking specifically about Westwood for UCLA and La Jolla for UC San Diego, certainly not thought of as the most welcoming for growth, would want those schools to do the same sequence for enrollment. And there are some legal experts that have warned that the environmental law could then be used as a tool to manage enrollment everywhere around the state for schools. It's pretty serious stuff, Liam. And this could have major implications for students across the state. But interestingly, too, for the use of CEQA itself, the UC told my colleague, Mike Zinstein, this is the first time CEQA has been cited to refer to enrollment growth as opposed to the usual housing or road development meaning that the arms of the CEQA octopus are growing. There's also an interesting wrinkle here, and we'll get into this with Mayor Aragin, where the city of Berkeley was once part of CEQA litigation against the university, alleging, similar to Save Berkeley's neighborhoods, that the university wasn't taking into account its negative impacts on the broader community. I see. But last August, the university and city settled their claims with the university agreeing to pay the city $83 million, an amount that more than doubled the campus's annual payment for student use of police, fire, and other city services. There's also a provision, interestingly, that requires the university to more closely monitor and restrain enrollment growth. So even though the city of Berkeley is now all for the university expanding its enrollment and against the existing sequel case, they kind of use their own sequel case to get paid out. 
And I think that issue can really speak to one of the main criticisms of law that, you know, various interests on all sides can use it as a leverage tool to get what they want when a particular project comes up, whether or not it's sort of directly related to the environment. You know, there are stories abound of labor unions using secret cases to get labor friendly pay deals on development projects or even rival businesses threatening secret lawsuits against their competitors' new expansion plan. A lot of things like that. Here's another very concrete example. Some Jimmy Shelter listeners might recall that we've made fun a bunch of a situation in Santa Monica, my stomping grounds. The city here wants to replace a parking lot known somewhat hilariously as Parking Structure 3 with a new low-income and homeless housing development. I was an avocado of the year candidate last year. Still not resolved, a new housing project has been stymied at every turn, in fact, by a sequel lawsuit that claims the city hasn't fully analyzed the impact of taking away the lot. Yeah, right. So again, there's no question that, that this Santa Monica needs low-income housing and that parking lots, generally speaking, are bad for the environment. And yet, here we have a major environmental law on the way. So as we've said, situations like this have been in the news for sort of years and years. And so I'm wondering, you know, when this first got into the news, it's like, well, there's going to be some reaction up in Sacramento at the Capitol, as there typically is, even if there's just some noise. What has been going on up in Sacramento about this? So similar to the mountain lion situation, Liam, the state has made a point of stepping in and, as you said, making some noise. Governor Gavin Newsom uh, pressed the California Supreme Court to stay the lower court order, essentially allow those 3,000 students to enroll. In an amicus brief submitted by State Attorney General Rob Bonta on February 18th, Newsom said slashing enrollment, quote, would be irreparably damaging to thousands of students and also undermine the state's broad interest in expanding access to higher education. He urged the Supreme Court to ensure California is expanding access to higher education, not blocking it. I mean, it's kind of ironic, right? I mean, the state has included a lot more money or in its budget uh, and has talked about the importance of continuing to expand enrollment. And here we are in a situation where there might be an enrollment cut. Exactly. Following the news in mid-February, Scott Weiner, a Democratic senator from San Francisco who's focused on housing and has been a guest on the show many times, he introduced a bill that would exempt from CEQA all on-campus student and faculty housing projects built by public state universities, including the UC system. But to be clear, this wouldn't directly address this particular lawsuit as it's over-enrollment and not housing development, but it would address other similar lawsuits filed over student and faculty housing development. Yeah. And also, too, I mean, the way that the bills work is that if something's introduced now, even if it passes, it wouldn't take effect until next year. Right. So it wouldn't necessarily affect this crisis right now. Right. Exactly. Is there anything that they would be able to do, the legislature, or the governor that would address the situation at the moment? Nothing in concrete yet. If they were to do something to address the immediate crisis, it would have to be in the form of a budget trailer bill, which get passed a lot faster than traditional bills, but there hasn't been any announcements made of that sort. See something, maybe everybody's waiting for the Supreme Court to say something, and then we might see something after that. But when it comes to sort of addressing the larger issue here of CEQA, is there anything in the works in Sacramento that you're hearing about? So Newsom has talked at length about wanting to reform CEQA. And I asked HCD director Gustavo Velasquez about this, and he told me that while he wouldn't want to characterize it as wholesale reform, there is strong interest from the state in improving the law so that it actually advances sustainable development that helps reduce the effects of climate change instead of blocking it. But he didn't really provide any specifics. That sounds like a lot like, you know, I've heard and we've heard about this in, in the past. You sort of have these firm denouncements of CEQA as it is with the pledge to do better. I hear my air quotes around do better there, but sort of really light on specifics. And so to me, I think what's really going to be interesting here is whether the legislature uses this very high profile example of CEQA messing with something like enrollment at its flagship public university with a new constituency of very angry parents involved, many of whom are probably learning about CEQA for the first time, to make any changes to it. I guess we've said, you know, perennially there's this debate about changing or overhauling CEQA, but what, if anything, gets done are typically these sort of smaller carve-outs ending up affecting a smaller set of pet projects or issues. There's one other bill that I forgot to mention introduced so far this session by Republican Assemblymember James Gallagher of Yuba City. 
But like Wiener's bill, again, it provides a CEQA exemption for a very particular type of thing, in this case, infrastructure grants provided by the state to meet other crucial needs around housing in order to be able to build it. But I wouldn't get my hopes too high about wholesale reform because, as we've talked about in the past, CEQA is too precious a tool for powerful interest groups to give up. These groups mainly include environmentalists and the all-powerful Building and Construction Trades Council, which hold a lot of weight in Sacramento. Yeah, and that's part of what we were saying earlier about sort of the leverage that CEQA provides for all sorts of things. And so I'm curious then, how has Building and Construction Trades, you know, the kind of umbrella group representing construction workers as a union across the state, how have they reacted to Wiener's bill then? So that group actually signed on to Wiener's bill. And the way that that happened is it mandates that all these CEQA-exempt projects get built with a skilled and trained workforce. That's where a portion of the workforce are graduates of apprenticeship programs, mostly run by unions, and that all the workers get paid union-level wages, a demand they introduced in the last couple legislative sessions that killed multiple bills to build affordable housing last year. I see. Okay, so before we move on here, are there, we have any recent examples we can point to of like how CEQA might be supposed to work without all of these sort of complications? I think there are lots of times you could say a CEQA analysis could be beneficial. Many of you may have watched the Super Bowl and perhaps heard about the awful traffic and parking situation in Inglewood, where the new SoFi Stadium was built. Well, that stadium, which was privately funded, was able to find a loophole so that it didn't need a sequel analysis. And a sequel analysis almost certainly would have flagged that traffic was going to be a nightmare and there wasn't great public transportation options to get there. So instead, what we've got is local officials now pitching a $1 billion people mover that would connect to a nearby light rail stop to the stadium. Billion dollars is a whole lot of money that even though the stadium was privately financed or touted as such, the public might have to shoulder that billion dollars. So certainly there could have been other ways than CEQA to catch this problem, but that didn't happen. Did you watch Super Bowl? I just watched the halftime show. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which I <Yes>. loved. <laughs> <laughs> right, which is also a, in, in well discussed in urbanist uh, circles for its depiction of uh, of uh, what walkable neighborhoods and Compton and the like, right? Exactly. But we've gone a little off topic, so I think we've made the point here that Sequoia is a land of contrasts. Um, but <laughs> yeah. but one that's uh, slowly taking over every decision about growth of all kinds that we make here in California. So I think we're only left with one question. And so what's that? Are people good or bad for the environment? Ah, uh, yes. I don't know. I mean, I like people. I think they should exist. But maybe I guess we'll have to wait and see what the Supreme Court says about that. Maybe they'll be the final arbiter. I guess so. All right. With that, let's go to our interviews. We are here with Jesse Aragin, who is the mayor of the city of Berkeley. Mayor Aragin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's start. Why is the decision to limit enrollment at Berkeley because of a CEQA case bad? Well, it's bad because over 3,000 students will be denied the opportunity to get a world-class education. For me, this is deeply personal. I am a first-generation college student, and if it wasn't for the University of California, I certainly wouldn't be mayor of Berkeley. It transformed my life. I know that there are just countless students who have come to Berkeley who have also been shaped by the university. In addition, the city itself grew around the university. And so certainly the university's growth and its future is very important to the city and its residents. And also the loss of students in our community has a direct economic impact, not just on the university's budget. They could potentially lose $57 million in funding, but also it has a direct economic impact on our city. So this is important, not just to the city's economic health, but it's also, I think, morally the wrong thing. And I think the state court overreached here. And we certainly have been working to try to improve the relationship between the University of California and the city of Berkeley and to create a much stronger partnership. And I'm proud that we've been able to do that over the last few years and work together to shape growth rather than react to growth. But um, the remedy of freezing enrollment is bad. It's going to impact thousands of students and families. And it's bad for our state. It's bad for our state's economy. And I think the courts should reverse its decision. 
We understand there have been a number of lawsuits and challenges about university projects, housing, enrollment over the last couple of years. Can you set the scene for us in Berkeley, what it's been like over there? Yeah, there have been a number of lawsuits over various projects. One case, there was a lawsuit over a intercollegiate volleyball court. It was actually filed by the same neighborhood group that um, sued the university and, and sought this remedy. And in that case, the university was just trying to make sure that they had Title IX compliant sports programs. The main lawsuit in question, which really led ultimately to this decision, was over a a project at the Goldman School of Public Policy, which is the public policy school at UC Berkeley, where they were proposing to expand academic space and add some housing on an existing university parking lot. And as part of that project, the university also studied the impact of its enrollment growth, because it had been some time since the university had studied its enrollment increase. 2005, when the university adopted its previous plan, long-range plan, it projected a certain level of enrollment. And just because just population growth and state's decisions, their enrollment increased by 11,000 students beyond what they planned for. And so that was really the subject of the litigation that ultimately led to this court decision. I'll just be honest, the city of Berkeley sued the university over that project, mainly because we felt that the university needed to mitigate the impact of its growth. And I'm actually very pleased that rather than capping enrollment and preventing students from being able to get an education, we reached a historic settlement with the University of California in which they're providing $83 million to the city of Berkeley over the next 16 years to fund city services and public safety, and also to do things like fix streets around the campus, to fund streetlights, to improve public safety. I think that's really the approach that we should be taking is working with the university in partnership to find solutions rather than doing things like freeze enrollment and stop housing development. University has the lowest rate of beds of any campus in the entire UC system. So it is absolutely critical that we build student housing. The city supports the university's plans to build more student housing. And we're looking at upzoning neighborhoods around the campus to meet the demand for student housing as well. Curious, I mean, you see, like, obviously, there's always a bit of a stereotype about, you know, town-gown relations, about how the town always dislikes the gown uh, for most part. And, I mean, Berkeley's not like a small city. So I guess I'm curious, like, is it every week at city council there's some disagreement or some fight or some issue as it relates to the university and the city or people complaining about that? Or I guess how central is university affairs, if you will, to like day-to-day city politics? Definitely is a major part of our city political conversation, but it's definitely changed. When I first came to Berkeley 20 years ago as an undergraduate student, at that time, you know, the city and the campus had a really contentious relationship. And I really made it a priority when I took office as mayor in 2016 to look at how we can strengthen our collaboration. At the end of the day, we're one city and we have to work together and the campus has a tremendous positive impact on the city. Also, the university's growth is also an issue we have to plan for and we have to address. You know, there have been very vocal neighbors who live around the campus who've been concerned around not only more students coming to Berkeley, but also housing projects, other projects. They've been certainly vocally advocating that the city of Berkeley support their litigation, support their demands. But I think for the most part, I think the people of Berkeley are deeply appreciative of the presence and role of the university in our city. And I think that where we are now from where we were five years ago, let alone 15 years ago, I think we're in a much better place. And that's not to say that we're going to let the university just do whatever they want. We will definitely make sure that as the university grows into the city, because UC Berkeley is a very landlocked campus, places to build other than off campus, that we are at the table working with them to shape their plans. And that we're also making sure that the university is contributing positively back to the community, aside from just the economic stimulus that they create by direct investments into the neighborhoods around the campus. And that's one outcome of the agreement that we were able to reach with the university this past year. You mentioned that settlement But Save Berkeley's Neighborhoods has argued that it's still not enough to compensate for the strain on city resources. How have you responded to that? I think it's important to put it in context. First and foremost, the agreement that we reached voluntarily with UC Berkeley is the largest monetary settlement that UC has provided any host community. 
and it supports things that are important to the city and important to the campus. For example, we are not going to stand in the way of the university building student housing. The university is providing funding for our fire and police department to make sure that we have the resources to meet the needs of a growing population. Every year, 30% of the money is being spent on things like complete streets projects around the campus or improving lighting around the campus. So there's a direct benefit, not just to the city itself, but to the campus itself as well. Certainly, the city would have liked the university to pay us more money. There's no question about it. But at the end of the day, this was an agreement that was reached voluntarily between the campus and the city. We're also mindful of the university's economic challenges, which is why the idea of cutting enrollment and starving the university's budget of $57 million is actually deeply concerning. And I think that this is, frankly, the way that these issues should be reached is through communication, through negotiation, through collaboration, and not through a scorched earth litigation policy that has some pretty significant consequences for thousands of students who've done nothing wrong and some of whom don't even live in Berkeley, but have already gotten letters saying that they're not going to be able to be admitted if the court doesn't change its decision. So I'm going to push on this a little bit because as we've been discussing, you know, the city was involved, right, in some of these lawsuits against the university over its enrollment numbers and other issues until it got this settlement that you've been referencing. So how can you argue that the neighborhood lawsuit against the enrollment is sort of this abuse of CEQA or scorched earth attack when the city was involved in much of the same way until it got paid out. Well, we think the agreement we reached with the university addresses our concerns. And the remedy that we sought was never to freeze enrollment, whereas State Berkeley Neighborhoods was pretty clear that that was what they were seeking. And the city council was very clear about this. While we think that the university needs to be a good neighbor and needs to pay its fair share, we don't want to deprive thousands of students from being able to get an education. And I think that there's a way to balance those two things. And that really has been the city's goal overall. There is legislation now in Sacramento that Senator Weiner is introducing to look at reforming CEQA relative to student housing. I support that because I don't think CEQA should be a tool to stop student housing. And that's why the city reached a voluntary agreement with the campus, because we didn't want to stand in the way of building housing at People's Park or building thousands of beds of housing close to campus. It's hard for anyone to justify that the reason that they oppose the university's plans is because they're not building housing while at the same time standing directly in the way of the university and being able to move forward with those housing plans. And that actually is the practical effect if this court decision stand. And students themselves have said this. They've been very honest that they want to make sure that the university is spending more in terms of housing and student services and academic space. While people aren't against more students coming to Berkeley, we need to plan for that. I really think that's our focus is not, no, we don't want more students, but how can we plan for growth? How can we make sure growth is responsible? How can we make sure that the university and the community are working together? And that really has been our focus all along. You're talking about working collaboratively with the university, right? But the method by which you were able to work out this deal was a sequel litigation. I mean, is that, in your view, appropriate way where these sorts of conversations or, again, to use your words, collaboration should be happening, that kind of forum? Well, we tried. <laughs> we tried to work voluntarily. You know, the way that it works is under state law, the University of California has a constitutional exemption from local taxes and from local land use regulation. And so that gives cities not a lot of options in terms of what to do in this situation. We would have preferred that we not have to file a lawsuit against the university. It was admittedly very awkward for the city and the campus to be in this situation. Me, especially as a, a, a proud alumni of UC Berkeley. But, you know, we felt at that time that was the path we needed to take because we had very limited options. And, and I do hope that as we're having the sequel conversation, that we'll also have a conversation around what is the responsibility of UC campuses to work with cities to address impacts. While we don't want to have sequel litigation stop things from happening, we also need to make sure that the universities are working with the cities that their campuses are located in and are working to help provide mitigation so that these issues can be addressed. Along those lines, Save Berkeley's Neighborhoods argues that this crisis is one of UC Berkeley's own doing, which is that it hasn't built enough housing for its students. And it's true, right? The university has added thousands of students without adding dorm rooms to house all of them. But the city also hasn't added enough capacity to accommodate its growing population. So 
why haven't you all done so? And what do you propose doing to accommodate that growth? The city hasn't, the region hasn't, and the state hasn't. I mean, just put put it in bigger perspective. This is not an issue that's unique to Berkeley. Cities throughout the state of California have not done their part to build more housing. And that's why the state has increasingly stepped in to pass laws to remove barriers for people to build housing communities. And there's obviously fierce debates that are happening, regional, statewide level around local control. I think that cities need to demonstrate leadership. So in Berkeley, as I mentioned, in the area immediately around campus, we're looking at upzoning those areas, such as the downtown to add even more taller buildings, looking at the South Side area, which is the blocks immediately adjacent to the campus, to allow development potentially up to 12 stories. We think that will add thousands of beds of new student housing close to campus. In addition, Berkeley was, I think, an early adopter of efforts to update our housing element. And last year, as, as you may know, we had adopted a resolution to commit that we will end exclusionary zoning in the city of Berkeley by the year 2022 in recognition of the fact of two things. One, we were the birthplace of single-family zoning as a way to prevent people of color from coming into some of the most exclusive neighborhoods in Berkeley. That's the foundation under which some of our land use patterns are built. And also, we have a critical housing shortage. And when you look at building housing in every neighborhood. So we are required by our regional housing needs allocation, which I helped advocate for as president of our Association of Bay Area Governments, to plan for 9,000 additional units. But we want to significantly exceed that and go beyond that amount. And so we're looking at upzoning, not just areas around campus, but some of our other neighborhoods in Berkeley and adding missing mill housing in our single family residential neighborhoods. No question, we have a deficit, but we are working to try to encourage through zoning, through other incentives, more housing being built in our city, because we know that we're a critical part of the equation as well. What do you make of the argument that the university population or student population is rising that is displacing low-income residents from the city? Do you think that that's happening? You know, there's no question that the significant shortage of housing in our city has an impact, has a ripple effect throughout our city. And that's why, while the university needs to build more beds and say Berkeley neighborhoods is correct in that the university has not done enough to build student housing. When I was an undergraduate student, I worked with the university on their last long-range plan. And they were supposed to build 2,600 beds. They built half of that. And so the lack of student housing has a ripple effect on our broader housing market. And so, yes, they need to build more beds, which is why we're supportive of Chancellor Carol Chris's housing initiative to look at building housing on nine university-owned sites. And they project they can build roughly 7,000 new beds of housing close to campus. Clearly, there's more that we have to do beyond that to meet the needs of the students that are here and the students that are coming to Berkeley, which is why we believe that we need to build more dense housing around campus and throughout the city. All this stuff will have a positive impact, but there's no question this significantly constrained supply in Berkeley and in the Bay Area creates a displacement impact, not just in Berkeley, but throughout the region. And that's why the solution needs to be not just anti-displacement policies and strategies, which we have adopted here in Berkeley, but also building more housing so that we can reduce some of that pressure and keep people currently housed and and welcome new people into our community. At the end of the day, we're a sanctuary city. While that policy is focused on welcoming immigrants and refugees into our community, to also be exclusionary in terms of our housing policies while we are a sanctuary city, I think is a bit inconsistent. And I think we need to do a lot more to be able to embrace more people coming into our city, which is why the Berkeley City Council voted a week ago file a a friend of the court brief in support of the university's uh, lawsuit, because we want to make it very clear that we stand for more students being able to get a world-class education. Students have a place here. They're welcome here. That's separate from university being good neighbor. And I think we can welcome more students and work with the university to address the impacts of its growth. So I just want to zoom out here for a moment, just talk about CEQA writ large. What sorts of changes do you think, if any, need to be made to the law as it relates to the housing or as it relates to university issues or in general? As I said, I support the bill that Senator Weiner is introducing to remove barriers for the university to build student housing. There's no question we need to look broadly at CEQA reform, but I do want to say I support the goals of CEQA, which really have been focused on trying to address the impacts on our natural environment. And I will say that 
the implementation evolution of that law over the years has actually prevented us from doing things that are good for the environment, like building more housing. Transportation emissions make up 60% of emissions in the state of California. The way that we address that is through clean transportation and also through building housing. The fact that there have been sequa barriers to putting in bike lanes, the fact that there are sequa barriers for transportation projects or for, for housing is contrary to the state's environmental goals. And so we got to look at it in that context. And that doesn't mean that that CEQA should be abolished. I think CEQA does need to be looked at very closely and reformed so that we are able to advance sustainable housing and transportation, which are going to be critical things to mitigating the impacts of climate change in our state. So, Mayor, a few years ago, you called Senate Bill 827, which would have significantly increased density near transit stops, quote, a declaration of war against our neighborhoods. Why did you feel that way then? And what made you change your mind about proposals like the ones you just discussed? Well, admittedly, that was a a bit hyperbolic at the time. And I'll just say that my perspective has evolved. I actually got into public office as a housing advocate. And this issue is deeply personal to me. I'm a lifelong renter. Growing up in San Francisco, my family was evicted on several occasions. I know what it's like to lose your housing, to face housing insecurity, and just how scary and how destabilizing that is for kids and families throughout our state. And then coming to Berkeley, because of the significant shortage of student housing, I got involved in advocating for more housing on the Berkeley campus and off the Berkeley campus. And so I come to this position as a housing activist, as a tenant activist, But my perspective has definitely evolved. And I think it's evolved for several reasons. One, I can't walk down the street and see people living in tents and extreme poverty and think that the status quo is working. In addition, we are facing a climate catastrophe emergency. We have to act urgently. And there's no question that building housing, dense housing close to transit, helps us reduce emissions and is a more sustainable way to live. If it can be done anywhere, it can be done in Berkeley. So... I think these two emergencies of housing instability and homelessness and our climate emergency really require that we have to look differently at this issue. And so I'm a very passionate advocate now for housing. I'm, a, I guess, born again YIMBY is how I characterize it. And frankly, the situation that we're facing is the product of decades, generations of bad decisions. And it's going to take some time for us to fix the problem. But there's no question the status quo is not working. It's not fair that people of my generation will never be able to afford a home in the city that they live in. It's not fair that families are facing even more economic pressure and people are being pushed to the furthest regions of the Bay Area because they can't afford to live in the cities that they work in. Something is fundamentally wrong. We have to change the way that we do business in the state. And that's why I believe very strongly that we need to embrace housing for people at all income levels, particularly close to transit. Mayor, anything else that you want to add or communicate to our very vast and influential audience in California and across the world, worldwide, as we know? You know, I think the issue with UC Berkeley is an example of a much bigger issue around how our state is growing and, and how we can grow sustainably. And I hope the court, you know, supports the university's application for a stay and that we can welcome over 3,000 students to Berkeley this next year. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to continue to work earnestly with the university around planning for its growth. But something is fundamentally wrong if people can go to the courts and stop students from being able to get an education. Something is fundamentally wrong when we have thousands of people who live on our streets cannot get access to housing. Something is fundamentally wrong when, despite having some of the most aggressive climate policies and targets, we still are facing a climate emergency here in California. And so We have to change. We have to grow. It's a question of how we grow sustainably, how we grow equitably. That's what's guiding our work here in Berkeley and needs to really guide the work of the state as we're working collectively to address this crisis. Because this is not just Berkeley's crisis. This is the state's crisis. This is a national crisis. It's a generational crisis. And as a millennial myself, I experience it every single day. And I know many people do as well. And we have to act boldly. We have to change the way that we live, the way that we grow in the state. Mayor Aragin, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Our guest is Phil Bakavoy, the president of Save Berkeley's Neighborhoods, which filed the sequel lawsuit against UC Berkeley that we've been discussing. Phil, welcome to Gimme Shelter. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to both of you. Set the scene for us here. Could you describe your neighborhood 
and how what's happening over there motivated you to file this lawsuit? I've lived in this neighborhood since I was in graduate school. I lived in a university-owned apartment where I taught in an academic program about a block away from here. And my former partner and I bought this house that I'm living in in 1989. The neighborhood is what I would call kind of South Campus transitional. So there are lots of rental properties that are primarily rent controlled or in-law units or cottages and that sort of thing. And it's about five to six blocks directly south at the eastern end of the campus. What's happening there that sort of motivated you to get involved in this way? So when I moved in, the neighborhood was a mixture of homeowners, students, longtime residents, and the longtime renters who lived in the rent-controlled units or in the cottages behind people's houses or in the in-law units. And starting about 12 years ago or so, as the university was increasing enrollment, the longtime renters were all disappearing and students were moving into the neighborhood. And in addition, there were several properties that had been in families for decades that were bought by investors and then converted into what we call mini dorms. And so we were alarmed, I think, at this transition that was happening. I don't think anybody in the neighborhood is opposed to having more housing in Berkeley. The question is, how do you do it and how do you separate out the uses. So Berkeley only guarantees housing for your first year. So students are forced out of the university in their second year. And for many of them, it's their first time living on their own. And that has all kinds of problems, particularly when they settle in neighborhoods where they're longtime residents. Most of the longtime renters in our neighborhood were people who worked at the university in staff positions, also in local businesses. Some of our biggest supporters actually are people who live in the rent control departments because their landlords have transitioned their buildings from having people who were there long time stable to putting as many students as they can in the buildings. So Berkeley had a very strict form of rent control. There was no decontrol when people moved out. And so when Costa Hawkins happened, same thing happened here that happened in San Francisco, which is that Landlords had a really strong incentive to push people out who were long-term residents in exchange for looking for people who were short-term residents. And we see that in the data. Just one three-year period between 2015 and 2018, where the university increased enrollment by several thousand, the census tracts around the university lost 11% of their low-income households. And those households were primarily renters because the homeowners, obviously, generally low-income households in this part of Berkeley. So what do you, problems do you think would in further increasing enrollment have from your perspective in the city? Well, I think it would end any possibility of having low-income renters within a mile or a mile and a half of the campus. One of the top high schools in Irvine wrote a story about this, and he sent me the story today. And he quoted one of their alumni, who's a sophomore here in Berkeley, told this reporter he's paying $1,500 a month for four people in a two-bedroom apartment. And I just couldn't believe he was paying. I mean, I hear from the students who live in our neighborhood that they're paying like 1000 or maybe 1100 to share a bedroom. And some of them are sharing three and four people in a bedroom. There's no way that people at the lower end of the income distribution can compete with that kind of revenue. And the students who are paying that kind of money either from wealthy families or who are non-residents because non-residents all pay $30,000 a year extra in tuition and they don't get financial aid. So I think we're really very concerned about losing the last diversity in terms of income that we do have. As I'm sure you're well aware, there's a ton of research showing that education, especially at such a premier public institution, has tremendous benefits for students and for the state's economy. And a large portion of the people impacted by this would be those lower income students. So why should the concerns that you're raising outweigh those benefits? Yeah, because it's not true. So as Berkeley raised its enrollment from 2010, the percentage of low income students at Berkeley as measured by Pell Grant recipients fell from 34% to 26%. And low income students already can't afford to live in Berkeley. And so they don't come here. Berkeley is now only fifth among all of the UCs in terms of California resident applications. And they just on Friday released the numbers for 
2022 applicants. And this is a long downward trend. And I knew a student in my neighborhood who graduated two years ago, and he was a first-generation college student. His dad was a farm worker. His mother worked in a packing house, and he was from the Salinas Valley. And the university actually guaranteed him housing for two years. So he lived in a dorm the first year, and then he lived in a like a university two-bedroom apartment the second year. But the second year, there was basically no other financial aid. So his parents would drive up here once a month from the Salinas Valley and take him to Costco so that he could buy a month's worth of food. And then after that, it was really challenging for him to find a place to live. When the university's actions have made the housing market so expensive, you can't expect low-income students to find Berkeley a place where they can come and succeed. They get work study, but then they work 20 hours a week and they have to study on top of that. Berkeley has done a really poor job of serving low-income students, and you can see that in the numbers. Maybe Berkeley will crack 20% Latinx students this year. And the proportion of Latinx students who are UC eligible in California is over 55%. So it's really disingenuous of the university to say that they can't serve low-income students because they haven't been serving low-income students. And if they were to build more housing, and in particular affordable housing, they would be able to serve a lot more deserving low-income and first-generation college students. So where then should that housing go? They've identified sites for 11,000 beds in Berkeley that they already own. Are you supportive of those projects? Well, we were supportive of the last project they did that did 700 beds across from the campus. We supported the housing in this current litigation, but the university chose to entangle that housing with severely inadequate environmental analysis of enrollment increases. And so that housing, by their own choice, got tangled up in the litigation. The university was required to do another long-range development plan, which they adopted in 2021. And that relies on the same flawed analysis that was used on enrollment increases in the case where the judges ruled against them. So CEQA requires you to do do a programmatic EIR, which is valid for a long period of time. And you analyze all kind of the macro variables so that you can use those when you go to build projects. And so they decided to kind of staple two housing projects to the LRDP, the anchor house that would create 770 beds, and then the People's Park Project, which, as you know, is controversial on so many different levels. So they've been making these choices to hold up their own housing projects by trying to use the housing projects as a political tool to avoid mitigating the impacts of their enrollment increases on the community. And one of those mitigating impacts would be that they would have to have a legally binding commitment to actually build the housing, which they don't currently have. 2005, they committed in their LRDP to add 1,650 students and 2,500 beds. Instead, what they did is they added 14,000 students and only 1,600 beds of housing. So they created this huge, huge additional demand on housing and have done almost nothing. So we've been supportive of housing. I mean, the community has written in environmental documents as part of the process, sites that we think are appropriate that they own to build housing. And yet they chose the People's Park site, which is about the most controversial site they could have picked. And they chose another site where they purchased a rent-controlled building and evicted the tenants and then destroyed the building. So we're often puzzled. I mean, I was in a meeting three years ago when the chancellor released their housing study. And one of the top sites is a 1950s single-deck parking garage with tennis courts on top that's in the middle of a student neighborhood, that's a perfect site, you could easily build 1,500 beds there. You know what I was, what we were told in the meeting? Well, we don't know how we would replace the parking. <laughs> we don't really believe that they're serious about building the housing. 
We think that this has really been a revenue generating strategy for them. The legislature for several years underfunded UC, but partly that was UC's fault. I mean, there was the secret $180 million slush fund at the office of the president. The fact that the office of the president has grown from less than 5% of a $35 billion budget or thereabouts to 10%. I mean, the office of the president spends more than $3 billion a year and it's layers of management that are duplicated on all the campuses. So this is a trend all around the country where big universities are forcing out low-income residents of the surrounding communities and then monetizing that. And if you look at all the joint ventures that Berkeley has with big corporations, I mean, they own buildings where Microsoft is renting space and nobody's paying taxes on it. (laughs) So there's this income transfer from people who are at the bottom end of the income distribution into the university. And they kind of paint it as, oh, well, it's the future of California. There was a great LA Times article last March by two professors, one at Merced and one at Riverside. And Merced and Riverside are the only two campuses that are majority Latinx in the system. And they got into the budget and what they found was that they were also had by far the lowest per pupil funding. And so if you're serious about educating our young people who come from lower income and first generation families, why are you underfunding their education within your own system? In terms of the housing that you're saying, you know, needs to accompany growth, where exactly do you think that should go? All the students that have gone underhoused and in order to accommodate new growth, if you think that should happen? Like I said, they've identified sites for 11,000 beds. You can negotiate over the size and the character of the project so that they fit into the neighborhood. They're about to tear down a 10-story building on the center of campus. The initial idea is they're going to replace it with a meadow to restore the view. (laughs) And the community is like, well, wait a minute here. You're going to tear down a 10-story building because it's not earthquake safe. Why aren't you going to build housing on that site? They tore down another 10-story building on a corner of the campus that's dense and right across the street is lots of student apartment buildings and housing. The chancellor told the community that, well, they want to do a joint venture with some big corporation there instead of building housing. I think that's the other problem we're having is that the university kind of wants to get their way out of this by doing mega projects. They're not subject to local planning, so it's very difficult to get them to be sensitive. So these are kind of the, some of the things we're up against. There's a lot of problems that you're identifying with the the spots that the university is proposing for housing. So I'm still a little confused on this point of you all support more housing, but where exactly will it go in a way that accommodates your needs and also fits this huge population? The Tolman site is an ideal site. They could easily put 1,500 or 2,000 beds there. It's well over an acre, uh, which is bigger than the People's Park footprint. They have another underused one-story parking deck on the south side of the campus next to the Hearst Gymnasium that they could put housing on. The initial Anchor House project would have had 700 beds and preserve uh, both the rent-controlled housing on the site and the historic resources that were on the site. And then they decided that they were just going to bulldoze the whole block and evict rent-controlled tenants. And those rent-controlled units will never be replaced. So for every two students who move into Berkeley that the university doesn't house, it creates demand for one affordable housing unit, which in Berkeley costs about $800,000 to produce. So, you know, we don't think the university should be in the position of destroying affordable housing in Berkeley without replacing it. So there's a lot of criticism, Phil, that CEQA shouldn't be used in a way that affects what a university system could enroll or how many students could be there. What's your reaction to those arguments? Well, the legislature in 2010 enacted two sections of CEQA that says that enrollment increases have environmental impacts on surrounding communities and that they need to be evaluated. The appellate court decision that we won in the first Save Berkeley Neighborhoods case, makes the point that the university 
can study a range of enrollment in a range of impacts and mitigations and then decide which course they want to take forward. So CEQA doesn't regulate how many people can be at the university. What regulates the number is the university's decision about how to move forward to accommodate that. Sure. And what we hear all the time, well, CEQA doesn't mandate anything. It just requires you to study things. Then you have to look at potential mitigation, all that sort of stuff, right? But the fact of the matter is we're in a situation now where, because of a CEQA lawsuit, that there's potential that the university will admit less folks than it otherwise would. The lawsuit isn't what's causing the problem. It's the university's failure to recognize their impacts. And I think that's appropriate. I think the university, like any economic actor in our society, needs to take responsibility for the impacts of what they cause on the environment and the surrounding community. You know, should a hospital decide that they want to move into an existing neighborhood and tear all the houses down and have ambulances coming in and all night. Sure, the hospital is saving lives, but we hold them accountable. I don't think that the university should be considered special because where do you draw the line? A hundred years ago, everybody wanted to have the Chevron refinery in their backyard. And in the city of Richmond, they loved having the Chevron refinery in 1900. But the environmental impacts particularly on low-income communities and people of color, have been tremendous. So we have at a university that's having similar impacts on low-income and people of color communities here in Berkeley. So why shouldn't well, they be accountable so, well, that? Hold on, but you're not, you're not comparing an oil refinery's impact on a surrounding community to like a world-class public university? No, I'm not. Yeah. No, no. I'm saying there are impacts. And as a society, we need to hold organizations accountable. Now, if the legislature wants to provide the funding for the world-class university to mitigate those impacts, that would be great. I think we'd all be on board with that. Why should these concerns outweigh those benefits that thousands of students could attain and really change their life by going to an institution like Berkeley? They may not. I mean, they haven't done that analysis. So CEQA has a balancing test. You can adopt a statement of overriding consideration in the case where the costs exceed the benefits, but they haven't done that. The problem here is that they've completely avoided studying the impacts. And that's what the judge said. They abused their discretion by approving this environmental plan because it didn't quantify the impacts. In fact, the university spokesperson was quoted last year as saying that they couldn't study the impact of homelessness because there's no data. I don't know what their game is here of why they aren't willing to quantify those impacts so we can have a discussion about the scope of the impacts and then what needs to be done. What's the ultimate solution here for you? Well, I think it's a commitment from the UC system that they're not going to continue to displace people in the community and that they're going to internalize the costs of their enrollment increases so that they reduce the impacts on the surrounding community. You know, I'll ask this in a sort of respectful spirit you have a degree from Berkeley yourself. So you yourself have received world-class education at a low cost. And because you've owned your home for a while in Berkeley under Prop 13, that allows you to pay property taxes that are far below what I imagine the market value of your home is. So how do you respond to the fact that you've received these sort of enormous and ongoing benefits from the state of California, but your actions in fighting this case could well have the effect of denying some others and some young people from receiving many of the same benefits that you've got? Well, I don't buy that argument. What we're doing is we're trying to hold the university accountable to provide the same thing that all of us who went through Berkeley uh, did when we did. When I came to Berkeley, there was a housing shortage and I found a rent control department and I lived in that for a year. And because of rent control, I was able to not have to scrape by as a graduate student. And I think it's terrible that the Pell Grant recipients at Berkeley have fallen from 34% to 26%. And that doesn't have anything to do with our lawsuit. I think that requiring the university to build the housing will expand access for lower income students. And I'd like to see that. You believe that by, I guess, restraining the amount of people that can come to Berkeley will actually in net benefit 
low-income students? We're not talking about restraining the number of people. I mean, there's only so many housing units here, right? So we're right now we're in a zero-sum game. So every time the university adds a student, an existing resident gets displaced. And so what we're saying is, you say you want to build housing to increase access. You said that in 2005, and you didn't do it. And you're saying it now. And the amount of housing that you actually have in the pipeline still doesn't solve the problem. And so if you're serious about providing access, then you need to build the housing so that students have some place to live. Phil, anything else that you want to add and emphasize for our very vast and influential audience in California and worldwide? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, when I look at the coalition of people in Berkeley who are supporting what we're doing, there are a few people who want to freeze Berkeley in amber, as they say. But most of us live here because we like having a university around. But what we've watched is a university that has lost its way and lost its mission. And we've offered to sit down with the university and work this out several times. And the current chancellor won't sit down and talk about it. I mean, I was talking to one of my neighbors recently. They're both Cal grads. And it really upsets her that Berkeley has cut off access to so many low-income students by creating this housing crisis. All right. Well, Phil, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you like our podcast services, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to your podcast. This, again, is very important so that new people can discover Gimme Shelter. Our editor, as always, is Victor Figueroa. Victor, we appreciate you. I am Liam with the LA Times, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela from Cal Matters, and my Twitter handle is Manuela Tobias M. Thank you guys for listening.